Do you guys love the Karate Kid? No, no. I mean, you do, right? Like the Karate Kid has been a great movie in two generations now. There's like the uh, the one in the '80s, and then you know, eight or ten years ago, another Karate Kid came out. Also epic. And one of the great, like, enduring truths of the Karate Kid, if you could call it that, or at least one of the, the big ideas, I don't know how you say I don't want to make the Karate Kid too theological, but, but what I'm saying, one of the things we all took away from is that somehow by waxing cars and painting a house and painting a fence and sanding a floor, you could learn karate, right? That was the training. This was like, and, and there's a whole, like, this is one of my favorite things in sports movies. This is like the mystical training, right? Like run up that mountain and then you can play hockey or whatever. But, um, but, but this is like the thing is this, this young man who has no ability to defend himself at all spends day after day doing these tasks that seem unrelated. And then at the end of it, somehow he wins the All-Valley uh, karate tournament uh, in Reseda, I think. So, um, yeah, but you know, life is a little bit like that. It's not always easy to see what you're being prepared for right now. A lot of times we are going through things that don't make any sense to us, that we, like Daniel to Mr. Miyagi, want to look up at God and go, what is the point of this? Why should I do this? Why do I have to do this? Some of those things are involuntary. You're just having a hard season in life, or you just are having not as much fun as you would like to be having, and you go, God, what am I learning from this? But also, there are things that both the scriptures and church history have handed us that might train us for what God would have uh, for us in the future. And not only tasks that he has for us in the future, but that train us to have the kind of character that he created us to have. Last week, we started talking about the spiritual disciplines, and we're doing a, a little four or five week series here that I don't usually do. If you're new around here, we are a open up to the book of Luke. Here's the next passage, and let's go through it. That's what we do uh, almost 100% of the time. But as we lead up to Good Friday, as we lead up to Easter, as we are at the season we are in in our church where, look, in some ways, we're not growing, we're exploding a little bit. Like what I just told you, what's going on in children's ministry, lots and lots of kids coming. We are having the opportunity to minister to lots of people right now. Like we're really, like God is providing us with opportunities. And we don't need more servants. We need deeper Christians. Are you with me? We need each of us to not go, well, what do I have to do? But rather, we need each of us to be so in love with Jesus that service and love and fellowship and these kind of things are popping out of us. And I want to reiterate before I even get going today that we have gathered today not in the pursuit of discipline, but in the pursuit of joy. In the same way that we have to look at the spiritual disciplines and God through his scriptures, says, look, this is the shape of a Christian life. You want to live a pious life? You want to live a life that is, that, that is in line with your love for, for God? This is what it looks like. And many times we go, but why am I sanding this floor? But why am I painting this fence? This doesn't make any sense to me. And we have to trust that we're not actually painting the fence or sanding the floor. What we're doing is learning karate. Are you with me? What we're doing is not just living a life of simplicity and fasting and tithing. Rather, what we're doing is allowing God to shape us from the inside out. We are becoming the people that God designed us to be. So 
as we talk about worshiping God, as we talk about sacrificing to God, as we talk about denying ourselves, we are never talking, and this is so huge, because I think this is, this is one of the gifts that, that God through Israel gave to the world, is that every religion, all of the ancient religions around Canaan um, thought that you should sacrifice to the gods. That was not a new idea, to have sacrifice. What was a new idea was that God was not angry and in need of being appeased or else he was going to get you, but rather that God in his love had redeemed us as a people, and it was our appropriate spiritual act of worship to give to him. It's not that God needs to be appeased. God has been appeased. He did it himself. Jesus was the propitiation on the cross. Now it is our great joyful pursuit to enter into that relationship. So we're not talking about a God that needs to be appeased. Rather, we're talking about being fallen people that are naturally selfish that need to learn to enter into the joy of the kingdom of God. We need to learn to take on the yoke of Jesus, which is light, which is where we find rest instead of hurry. Hey, y'all. Anybody into finding rest instead of hurry, peace instead of stress, joy instead of barely hanging on. Really, it just comes down to living daily in the presence of Jesus. We all need to learn to live daily in the presence of Jesus. And you've heard that kind of phrase your whole life. And so when somebody says, we need to live in the presence of Jesus, you go, mm, mm-hmm, don't we ever. And then do you walk away and go, I'm not sure what that means. How do I actually do that? It's about making the kingdom of God and his righteousness our aim. Again, I said this last week. I'll say it each week probably. This is about not making our relationship with the Lord a side project in our life, but rather that that is the thing we are doing in our careers and our hobbies, and even the things that God has given us to steward that are wonderful, like our families, are not the central thing in our life, but it is Christ that is the central thing in our life, His kingdom, His righteousness. It's about learning to trust that God is a good father and knows how to give good gifts to His kids, and then resting in that and laughing more and enjoying the good gifts of life that He's given us. We're pursuing joy. So in order to pursue this rest, in order to pursue this joy, in order to pursue this like peaceful life of joy, and I'm not making that up, right? Aren't we familiar that staying in step with the Holy Spirit bears the fruit in our lives of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and the other good things? Are you with me? So what we're doing is we're pursuing life with Jesus so that we might live a life of joy. For that to happen, it takes rhythms. It takes rhythms of fasting and feasting. We like the feasting naturally. We have to be taught the fasting part. It takes rhythms of solitude and fellowship. Now, some of us naturally enjoy solitude. Some of us naturally enjoy fellowship. Probably very few of us naturally have good, healthy rhythms of alone with the Lord and as a spiritual discipline with his body in celebration. We need um, rhythms of silence and joyful singing. There must be times 
when, and we'll get to this in, in subsequent weeks, but there must be times when the phone is off and the, the stuff is off and whatever's going on and you're in silence. There also must be times when you go, I don't have a great voice and I don't love this song, but you know what I do love is the Lord. I'm going to sing with joy. So today, so we're going to break this up into like four weeks of four different things. We talked about this last week. There's, there's kind of, and I don't love the way I've broken down these categories, but it was the best I could do. Um, there are private things that, that um, are just for us that are issues of denial, things that we should limit ourselves in. And then there are things that are private that we should add to our lives. And then there are things that are public that we should remove from our lives. And then there are things that are public that we should add to our lives. So let's start this week with private disciplines of denial. And of course, this is not an exhaustive list, but these things that we're going to talk about today are private in that we don't brag about them, or we don't insist that others join with us. Now, it might be appropriate to go, yo, sing with me. It is not appropriate to go, yo, show me your bank account, what you're giving like. You see the difference? It's private. They are disciplines in that they are things that we learn and we grow in. These outline the way marked out for a life with Jesus, a life into joy. We talked about this on Wednesday, um, but the root word for disciplines and the root word for discipleship has to be the same. It is the same, and we have to think of disciplines not as things that we do because God is mad and we have to try to be good, but rather that through his word, through the Holy Spirit, we're being discipled into this life of joy. I have to tell you a funny story, and I have permission to do it. Well, let me tell you. So they're, they're private and disciplines and denial, and so these are disciplines that God is calling us to, to give stuff up, things that we, um, that we naturally do um, as acts of worship. We, we have to give up things that, that naturally we possess, that we think are ours. And again, it sounds like when we talk about some of these things, I know I realize I'm a little bit going from preaching to meddling. You know, I understand that. But I'm your pastor and I love you. And I can't tell you how much I love you. And I'll tell you, growing up in church, I didn't hear sermons about how to fast. I really didn't hear sermons about how to, how to give. Because no pastor really wants to stand up here and talk about giving because it seems like it's about me, right? But let me tell you, Everything I talk about today, we try to practice as a church, try to practice as a family. And I have found in my own scattered heart, I am nervous all the time. I never think I can do it. I'm insecure about everything. And I have noticed that these disciplines of denial have been the path to freedom for me, just as personal testimony. But I didn't really hear it from the pulpit. I heard it from being discipled. You know, my dad taught me to give. My mom taught me to fast. Just watching them. Just telling them, hey, I got a first paycheck. Really? Come here. Let's talk about it. But I didn't hear this from pulpits very much. And sometimes I heard, you have to do this, but I left thinking I have to do it because I have to appease God. Not, this is the path to freedom. Um, so I have permission to tell this story. We talked about this some on Wednesday, and I thought we had a great conversation on Wednesday. I enjoyed it a lot. And then my dad texts me. Um, my dad, who is an, a, a shepherd at this church, and we live together, and we are as close as a father and son can be. So he texts me the next morning and goes, 
I, drink, I, I made a joke about how Folgers coffee is bad. I'm really sorry about that. If you're a Folgers person, I'm so sorry. It's not for me, but God bless you. Um, and, um, and, uh, and so he texted me the next morning and said, I just bought a car and I drink Folgers. Uh, should I try to find a new church? Uh, yeah, that's right. So I didn't text him back. We lived together. So I marched upstairs and told him, if you're looking for a good church, there's several in the area. But isn't it easy to kind of feel that way as soon as we talk about this stuff? As soon as we talk about things that naturally are yours, that you have every right to. Nobody should take these things away from you. But that you would, of your own will, give them up. It's easy to go, ugh, pastor's in my mess kit. No, I love you, and I think there's a life of joy. And I also know, I don't see all of the... I don't see any of the, the numbers. I see the end numbers, but I, I have no idea what any of you are giving. But I can tell you, for a little church our size, this is a very faithful church. I know that this is a church where, in many ways, I'm preaching to the choir. So lean in. So we grow into spiritual people that are less dependent on things of this world as we participate in these disciplines of denial. And notice I didn't say less connected to things of this world, because actually, in fact, if we are dependent on things in this world, we're ne we will never really learn to care for this world. Are you with me? We can make an idol of it, we can worship it, but to genuinely take our place as, as image bearers of, of God who have been placed here to steward and care for the material world, we're never going to do that. If we are dependent on it, it's only going to be as we say, I'm only dependent on God. And I love and I serve and I care for the world around me. The testimony of Scripture is that the physical world was created good. We're not talking about asceticism and we're not talking about minimalism because both of those things, and you know, if you want to sell your couch and whatever, that's great. Go ahead and sell your couch and be a minimalist. That's fine. But but to say less things will bring me joy is the same uh, like mental problem as more things will bring me joy. Are you with me? We're not talking about some earthly philosophy of less or more. What we're talking about is not the rejection of the material world, which is asceticism. We're also not talking about clinging only to material things that are necessary, which is minimalism. We're talking about putting the material world in its proper place in our lives. And if you want a joyful life, you're going to have to put the material world in its proper place. It kind of comes down to this. Material stuff is great if you don't worship it. You with me? You can have a lot of fun. You, you, you have a car you like? Great. Enjoy it. Get behind that wheel and go, man, God, your blessings are good. But as soon as you worship it, it owns you. Worship, worship Jesus and recognize material things as good gifts from a good father, you're headed for a life of joy. Look to stuff for security, for satisfaction, you're running down a dead-end road. So this is not instruction on how to have less, less stuff. It might bear out that way. But this is not instruction on how to have less stuff. Rather, this is instruction on how to enjoy your life in Christ more that we would be satisfied in Christ. And I think it's self-evident that 
A life of pursuing things of this world does not lead to a life of joy in this world. Don't we all know that? If I was to stand up here, which I will right now, and say, hey, well, money doesn't buy happiness, we'd all go, eh. heard that before. We all kind of know that. And then we might go, but the lack of money doesn't buy happiness either, so might as well. <laughs> and that's true too. We know it. Has more ever, has more, 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 like is that philosophy ever equated to more peace or more joy? I don't think it has. I think the history of the world and our friends and, and the lives we've lived bear witness that if, if we went back and explained our world to a peasant 300 years ago, and we said, here's what we can do, and here's the stuff we have, and here's, I've made this like, joke before, but if you showed somebody in Italy in the year 500 your spice rack, they would be like, we fight wars over this stuff, right? We can talk to people far away. We can, well, I've, ne I've never been saddle sore once in my life, you know what I mean? Unless it was a motorcycle, which is a pretty good time. And yet, we haven't been able to mass produce peace or joy. We need another way. We need a new path. So today, let's talk about fasting and giving in simplicity. And let's start with simplicity. Simplicity is probably the thing you're least familiar with. And this, and the, for a definition, the simplicity really comes down to seeking first the kingdom of God and nothing else. Um, if you'd open your Bibles to the Sermon on the Mount, so Matthew 5 um, and 6, and in this, this verse will be on the screen as well, but Matthew 5, 8 in the Beatitudes says something so profound that I don't know that we typically have a really good idea of what this means. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, pure in heart does not mean perfect heart. Rather, it means a heart that is focused on God and nothing else. That is not, you know the definition of pure, right? If I have, if I have a, a bowl of pure sand, there's nothing else in it. But as soon as I put weeds or anything else in it, it becomes less pure. Uh, that's how we like measure drinking water, right? This drinking water has only one part per million that's anything except water. And, but this water over here, the swamp water, well, it's not pure. It's got a lot of other stuff in it. A pure heart, a heart that has nothing except the pursuit of God in it, well, these are the people that see God. Do you want to hear from God? Do you want to know God more? Do you want to have intimacy with God like Christ on earth had intimacy with his Father? Well, blessed are the pure in heart. How do we make our hearts not full of career and stuff and ambition and all of these things and instead have our hearts firmly set on Christ and his kingdom, God and God alone? So what we mean by the spiritual discipline of simplicity is pursuing a life that is only focused on one thing, and that one thing being God, and that leading to seeing Him more clearly. So simplicity is pursuing a life with an undivided heart. Does that sound good to anybody? To not be moving in 75 different directions, but to have everything be filtered through, how does this help me um, pursue God and His righteousness? 
Matthew 6, Susan just read the, the full passage to it, but Matthew, Matthew 6 and 31 and, uh, through 33, if you'll turn the page over, say, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And you know, I'm mindful as I read this that don't be anxious is a tough commandment. Have you ever like had a child that was losing its mind and just yelled calm down at it? That doesn't work. It doesn't work with, Pete, with adults either, right? If I'm just flipping out and I'm having a terrible day, like telling me, like, don't be sad is not going to help me be not sad. Or telling me you need to calm down unless you're an authority and I'm afraid of you is probably not going to help me calm down. So it's no wonder that Jesus didn't just say, don't be anxious, but this teaching, this command, this like encouragement, don't be anxious, is, is put right after instruction on fasting, on prayer, and on giving, because those are the paths to a lack of anxiety. Those things are not just instructions. They outline a curriculum to being able to turn from anxiety and fear and turn towards rest and joy. So as we start a life of spiritual discipline. At the very beginning of this kind of life, we have to establish something that will profoundly change the way we view all of the spiritual disciplines. And we'll talk about lots of them over the next few weeks. But I have to encourage you to decide this about the universe. Is the kingdom of God a place of lack or plenty? Do you have enough or do you not? Lack or plenty? In Christ right now. Let me ask it this way. Do you have to have more to have enough? Whatever category you want to put it in. More friends, more money, more time, more whatever. Or in Christ, are you loved and safe right now? Do you have enough? Do you have to have more to have enough? How much more do you have to have enough? Do you have to have everything to have enough? Or can you get to the point where you say, in Christ, though he slay me, yet I will worship him. I have learned the secret of want and plenty, and it certainly is not having more. It is having a heart that is focused on God. If this is a... If you live in a world of lack, then you should be like a chipmunk, just scurrying around, shoving stuff in your cheeks, burying like nuts all over the place. Don't you guys get a kick out of like it's squirrels and chipmunks that plant forests because they hide acorns and forget where they hit them and it plants trees. That's great. And so many of us are like that. Man, I, there's just lack. There's just not enough. And what am I going to do? And how am I going to retire? And, and what's it going to look like? And oh my gosh, the prices around here and the, the gas and the real estate and the whole thing. And it's so brutal. I just got to go get more. The only answer is for me to work harder. We're like, like in, any, in any car chase in a movie, you know how you like go faster in the car is you just make a grimace face and grip the steering wheel, right? Like, oh, the, the bad guys are coming. You go, and that makes the car go faster somehow. 
And that's the way we're all living our lives, going like every newscast, we're like, oh no, we need more. The world is brutal and I got to try harder and I got to, because there's lack everywhere and I'm going to run out and there's not enough of anything and there's not enough love for me and so I have to keep earning it. But if you live in a lack of, if you live in a world of plenty, I don't have, I'm not an animal expert, but I just have this picture of a lion asleep on a savanna, just going, there'll be food when I need it. I'm not a squirrel. I'm not scurrying around, stuffing my face with acorns and burying them in every tree in the world and in every hole and whatever. Rather, I just trust that when I need it, it'll be there. Now, let me be clear. There really isn't any place in the kingdom of God for lazy. Right? This, the scriptures do not teach us lazy, but they do teach us rest. And we live in a world where lazy is glorified and workaholic is glorified, but Appropriate rhythms of work and rest seem silly. Do you live in a world of lack or of plenty? And if you're like me, I hear questions like, well, if I believe in the kingdom of God as a place of plenty, not lack, God is good and can provide, then only then is like pure simplicity possible. Seek the kingdom of God first. And I, I you know, I, I hear questions like, well, and I go like, well, in my brain, I believe that in Christ I have enough. I could teach it. It's pretty easy. I even know verses. And in my heart, I really do. Like, I got it. I know. Like, I believe it deep down in my soul. But in my life, it's really hard to live out. Practical day-to-day, we need a path. And the scriptures have laid out things like fasting and giving and simplicity that might be a path for us to have hearts of peace and joy, trusting that we live in a kingdom of plenty, not of lack. So let's talk a little bit about fasting and regular giving. I'll say regular giving. Tithing might be a, a word that you're familiar with. Tithing, tithe just means a tenth. It means 10%. And that's an Old Testament idea, but we'll talk about that right now. And um, so 10% might be a good target. It might be something that you would uh, think about as a family, but, but that's not what we're talking about. Is a, let's not make any of this, let's not use any of this to turn ourselves into legalists, all right? We are all for pious Christianity. We are not for legalism at all. I'll say that a few times. So fasting, just definitionally, fasting in the scriptures means going without food for a time. can be a meal, a day, three days, seven days. Um, for Jesus once, it was 40 days. Uh, and giving um, is, you know, I'll, I'll use that word giving, but that's different than generosity. So we'll talk about generosity at another week. Giving is the regular rhythm of of providing um, from, your, from your treasury. So fasting and giving are both setting aside of things that you have every right to. You have every right to a meal every time you're hungry. You have every right to all, you worked hard for that money. It's yours. Good for you. Like, it's great to be a hardworking person. Nobody should take that from you. Like, you, you earned it and it is yours. And you're allowed to do what you want with it as prayerfully you figure it out. We are not talking about a legalistic tax here at all. What we're talking about is you looking at stuff that you have every right to and go, as an act of worship, I'd like to give some. So 
culturally in the New Testament. First of all, let's start with the Old Testament. Fasting always meant food, and, and Israel was required to fast on the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, but people also chose to fast for a variety of reasons because they were grieving for repentance. They would fast. Oh, I feel bad. I'm going to fast for a day and think about what I did, and I'm going to turn and move the other direction. As an act of worship, they would just fast. Um, Joel Green, who I've appreciated a lot in, this, in these topics, um, sums up the Old Testament teaching of fasting and that it was for the purpose of humility. And that's something good to think about. We all know that humility is kind of the base Christian virtue of everything else. Like pride is the problem, humility is the answer. That works itself out in a lot of different ways. And if you want to grow in humility, this is, this is how. It expressed humility in that it reminded the person of our frailty. It reminds us of our need for God. Don't eat, skip one meal and see if you don't feel frail. It just reminds us how human we are. Don't eat for a day and see if you go, ah, that was no big deal. No, you will argue with yourself all day long. You will feel you'll have a headache. The first time you do it, especially, you got to learn how to fast. There's like skills to it. You'll get a headache and, you, uh, and, and you'll be a little grouchy. Like I, I'll say this at the end, but like don't fast for the first time when you have a meeting with the boss. You know what I mean? You walk out of there without a job. You will feel it. And is it good to remind ourselves that we are humanly frail and how much we need God? So it expressed humility in that. It also expressed a trust in God. And I, I told you this last week, and I've said it before, but, you know, I've struggled with weight my whole life, and food has been a, a problem for me my whole life. And, and, and when your mind's broken like mine, I, like, live in this world where I go, oh, no, I'm going to die. You know what I mean? Like, I have to remind myself, hey, dude, you could live on the fat of the land for, like, six months. Like, you're not going to die. But do you know that panic? Do you know that, like, oh, my gosh, I'm hungry. Something bad has happened. Well, when we deny ourselves, we are reminding ourselves, that's not true. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to break this fast. Either I'm going to skip one meal and break this fast in three or four hours, or I'm going to skip a couple meals and break this fast at dinner, or I'm going to you know, fast for, for, from sundown to sundown. That's how they did it in the Old Testament, in the, in the New Testament too. And, and when I break this fast after sundown, man, I'm just going to sit down and not think, oh, finally. I reached the finish line. No, I'm going to go look at the provision of God. How much does God love me? So in the New Testament, Jesus continues and encouraged fasting for similar reasons. He instructs, um, he instructs on how to fast. Susan just read that to us. Um, we could read it again in verse uh, 16 of, of uh, chapter 6 of Matthew. Um, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. This is the big point. It's all about your heart. It should be a private thing. It's not so you can like get the congratulations, you're a great Christian trophy. Um, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. If you want everybody else to go, wow, I've never fasted. You're so good. Congratulations. That's all you're getting out of it. But rather, anoint your head. Take a shower, Holmes. Like, wear, your, wear, wear something clean. Tuck it in, brother. Like, act like you're okay. You know why you should act like you're okay? Because you're okay. You're just remembering that you're frail and you need the Lord. That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. We'll come back to that. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
So he instructs in how to fast in the Sermon on the Mount. When, uh, when Jesus is asked why his disciples didn't fast, he said, hey, when the bridegroom is with uh, his friends, they don't fast. But when the bridegroom leaves, then they'll fast, insinuating that Jesus was with his disciples, and after the ascension, they would take up the regular practice of fasting. And even that people noticed that his disciples didn't fast makes it pretty clear that this was a regular cultural experience. And you know, I, I like that. To, den- to deny myself and feel the, the fragility, the frailty in my, own bi- in my own body, to long, to give me a reason to long for, the, for, for full presence of Jesus. You know, we live in a now but not yet kingdom. Has the kingdom of God been established? Yes, we live in the kingdom of God. Is it established like it will be someday? No. And we spend so much time talking about the now. God's with you, God's with you, God's with you. Is God with you? Yeah, totally. We should do that. But things like giving and fasting remind us of the not yet. That to live as a Christian in this world means you never really fit into this world. That there is a longing for the presence of God. So the bottom line is that New Testament Christians fasted regularly, and in particular, it was the custom to fast weekly. Pharisees fasted twice a week, um, Tuesdays and Fridays, if I remember. Um, They they fasted for a day, which was sunset to sunset for them. Um, Jesus doesn't ever condemn this practice. He doesn't condemn most of the practices of the Pharisees. Rather, it's their heart that's a problem. It's not that they do the wrong things, it's that they do them in the wrong way. So we are for pious religious practices. We are against legalism. Yeah? Yep. But it takes real maturity in Christ to know the difference. So giving in the New Testament was also a normal practice for believers. In the Old Testament, we have this in our mind that they would give a tithe, which is 10%. In reality, they gave more like 30% total after temple taxes and festivals and all of that. Um, And we think about, yeah, they gave animals and stuff. You know what their bank account was? It was their herd, right? It was how many cows you got. That's the bank account. I went to Ethiopia. Don't know if I mentioned that I've been to Ethiopia. Um, But... We weren't allowed to take pictures of the camels. We did get one or two, but you don't take pictures of the camels because if you, if you ask an off-our guy to have a picture of his camels, it's kind of like me going, hey, can I have a screenshot of your bank account? Right? This is, this is their wealth. And so they brought their, their treasure as a tithe. So there was the tithe, and then there was festivals, and there were temple taxes that equated to, um, to about 30% total, but the tithe was the regular giving. During the second temple period, which is when Jesus is, is on the earth, tithe had been turned into a way to have a synagogue in each town. So the big idea was if you had 10 Christian families uh, when they became churches, but if you had 10 Jewish families you could, and everybody's tithing, you could support a synagogue and a synagogue leader. And there wasn't, it wasn't a particularly like legalistic thing. Um, in bigger places, a synagogue was its own place, and there was a full-time temple uh, or synagogue leader. Do you know any synagogue leaders? Jairus. Remember, we, we just met Jairus in Luke not too long ago. He's a leader of the synagogue. That's what he did, like a local pastor. Um, 
Small towns, smaller villages had bivocational leaders and the synagogue was attached to houses, but this was how they provided for, uh, for the local synagogue. And, and when that turned into church worship, that's how they provided for that. So while there's a practical purpose to giving, and you know, it's, it would be easy for me to, to like, uh, it would be actually very hard for me because I don't think it's right. But, but I suppose a pastor could stand up here and go, look, we got ministry ideas and we need to provide. So you guys got to give so we can do stuff around here. And there is a practical side to that. We're a church family. Like any family, um, we are limited and expanded by how much money we bring in and whatever. But I'm not going to stand up here and encourage you to only give out of joy and out of prayer and to give within your means and do that and then say, and you had better give so we can do what we want. Rather, we want to model as a church exactly what we hope you model as a family and go, God, what have you provided? And we will use what you've provided. We won't go into debt and we won't, and we won't expect anything except that this would be our, our spiritual act of service, that we would steward well. So that's what we as staff do. That's what uh, we as a church um, do. You know, I think this is most clear at the story of the widow's might. For lack of time, I won't read it to you, but you know the story. Um, Pharisees bragging about giving big uh, amounts, and this widow comes and just throws in a, a couple of pennies, the, the widow's might, into the, into the giving uh, pitcher, whatever that was, a vase, something, um, and Jesus says, this woman's given more than everybody else. You go, well, what's going on there? And I think the common teaching is something like it's about her heart and it's the, the size of the monetary gift is insignificant. It's about where her heart is. And I think that's absolutely right. I think there's also uh, a, a teaching point there that we'll get to when we get there in Luke that says all these Pharisees are taking care of their own reputations and nobody cares for this widow. Why is she giving her last two pennies? Are there people there to help? So it's about your heart. And it's about joy. And it's about conforming ourselves to people of worship, not out of legalism. God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need to be appeased. But rather saying, I would be so healthy. It would be so good for me to find ways to remind myself that this stuff isn't mine. But rather to say, man, God is so good. You know, there was a season where uh, a car died and we didn't have the ability to go buy another car. And so I was on the bus for like the, my bike and the bus. It was great. I like was healthier and had more fun and I don't know. Um, but I worked in Carmel Valley and, and lived in Marina. And so that bus ride every day. And when I would go get my, my monthly bus pass, I never felt like, man, this is lame. Like, Everybody else has a car. Why don't I have one? Rather, I was like, God, I've never, I've never had to be somewhere that I couldn't get. Like, God, you bless me so abundantly. It was a very joyful season. So regular giving, tithing for lack of a better term, and fasting were both things that the first Christians participated in. But the point was never hunger or poverty. We're not trying to be in poverty and we're not trying to starve to death. But rather the point was remembering how good God is and his provision. So real quickly, give me another eight minutes. 
What are we talking? Probably not even. Let's talk about what fasting and tithing are not, okay? First, they aren't a way to bend God's will to yours. And this is very, very important. Because you'll hear things like, do you have needs? Well, then you need to sow your best seed, and you need to give to this ministry, and then God will bless you with money and with whatever. And that's just not scriptural. And I know it's popular. I know you hear it, but it's just not scriptural. Now, that is not to say that God does not bless us, and it is not to say that God does not bless us in response to our giving. I totally think he does, but it is not, God, I need a Lamborghini. Here's everything in my bank account. I'm going to go out to the driveway and expect a Lamborghini. Rather, it is saying, God, I so trust you. I think you can provide for me. So here's my worship, and Father, take care of me. You're the dad. I have noticed that my kids are not stressed out whether or not we pay the rent. They just trust that me and Tiff got it covered. Isaiah 58, I'll just read a portion of this. Isaiah 58 talks about tithing in in Israel, and, and it says this, Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness. Don't you love that? He goes, oh, they seek me. He's talking about fasting here like they do righteousness. Oh, they come to me like, like they obey. They're, these bunch of jokers are out living rebellious lives for themselves. And then they come to me and be like, oh, we fasted. Give us stuff. And they delight to know my ways, and if they were a nation that did, as if they were a nation that did righteous, uh, righteousness, and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Uh, when we have humbled ourselves and take no knowledge of it, do you see this? Like these people are like, God, we fasted. How come you didn't give us stuff? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. And there's maybe no greater pleasure than self-righteousness. And you oppress all your workers. See, they fast. They make the workers work a double shift. And behold, you fast only to quarrel and fight. You're just talking about who's the champ. And you hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice heard on high. Let me skip down. Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness and to undo the straps of of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to to share your bread with uh, the hungry and to bring the homeless into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, then shall your light break forth like the dawn. You want God to bless you? Man, this is what we're talking about. And, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go on before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. This is when God watches your back. When we have hearts that are bent towards him. And our giving and our fasting is in line with those hearts. So it's not as a way to bend God's will to yours. 
Um, number two, giving and fasting aren't requirements to salvation or entrance into the kingdom of God or even entrance into a local congregation. You have to, you have to do these things um, to be around, to be a Christian, to be uh, here at Lighthouse. They are not sacraments. They are practices. And those are very, very different things. Um, so again, we are pro-worship, we are pro-pious sacrifice, and we are adamantly against legalism, and we are adamantly against guilt-based discipleship. This is about living a life of joy. Third, these aren't evidence of superiority in the church. What makes you great in the kingdom of God? Service. Being the servant of all is how to be great in the kingdom. That has nothing to do with being the most pious religious person. So rather, what giving and fasting are then are worship. They're a means of relationship with God. It's a way to, to be in relationship with God regularly. It's an expression of our hearts. It is a path to humility. And I think that is so important. Don't you know that we need to be more humble than we are? Don't you know that, that denying self is just so central to being the person you want to be? Well, how do you do it? Well, here's how to start. Just don't eat for a day or don't, don't skip a meal and instead pray and take some of your, the stuff that you earned that is absolutely yours and of your, of your free will, give some. This is how humility gets formed in us. Again, we're not aiming for starvation and bankruptcy. Get bankruptcy. We're aiming for intimacy with Jesus. Quite frankly, would you like to be more grateful for your daily bread? Fast. Would you like to feel wealthier? I tell young couples that all the time. You're just starting out. You're broke. Um, it's hard to make ends meet. You know, Tiff and I have always been fine, but we've never been super rich people. And I can tell you that, that, that living a, having your budget set in a generous way makes you feel wealthier. So where do you start? Well, begin with prayer. And prayer with joy and pray for joy. Never out of guilt. Never out of duty but out of joy. Also, use wisdom. Don't fast for the first time the day you have a test or a big meeting. Decide what you would like to fast. In the Bible, uh, fasting always means food, but again, let's not, be real, let's not be legalist. You want to fast Netflix? Fine, fast Netflix. The problem with fasting Netflix is that Hulu is still available. <laughs> you fast food, <laughs> you know, that's kind of the only option. But you have some physical thing that you can't skip a meal. All right, fine. Skip chocolate or have orange juice instead of solid foods. or Be, cre <laughs> be, be creative instead of legalistic. But challenge yourself and pray hard. and Tell God you trust him. You have health issues that make it unwise to fast, then don't. But give something up. Have an act of worship. The same with giving. Give what you can give joyfully. Pray that it might increase as you go. 10% is a great target, but that can be a tough place to start if you don't have a regular uh, practice of, of giving. Give, give sacrificially, but don't be a legalist. You know, I've heard lots, you can read whole books on pre-tax, post-tax. What if it's from your retirement account, did you, already, did you already tithe on that? Well, now you're bringing it out again, and you're going to, do you have to tithe? <laughs> Look, dude, do you love the Lord? Like, it just isn't about that. God doesn't need any of this stuff. 
And quite frankly, Lighthouse doesn't need any of this stuff. We'll do what we provide for as a, as a, a congregation, as a church family. And if it ever came a time where God didn't provide and I was bivocational or non-vocational or whatever, I'd be fine. Like, we trust the Lord. This is never guilt-based anything. We're leaning into joy. Give up on all the legalistic pre-tax, post-tax, dividends, investments. <laughs> Decide what's in your heart to give and give it with joy. Remember that simplicity means that our hearts are centered on Jesus. So budget in such a way that your worship of Jesus is reflected in your budget. Should I say that again? Budget in such a way that your worship is reflected in your budget. It isn't you giving um, what belongs to God. You are not giving what belongs to God because it all belongs to God. You are reminding yourself of how good the provision of God is. So use wisdom. And lastly, enjoy the private nature of both fasting and giving. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, both of these practices should be done with no personal fanfare. These are things that you do in secret. But it's not just that you do them in secret. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus said, don't tell anybody about it. Rather, Jesus says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. Keep this to yourself and do it in secret because your Father who sees in secret knows how to reward you. I would encourage you to take God up on that. It's, do you want to have an inside joke with God? Like, do you want to know stuff? Do you want to have this stuff where you go, man, God has provided for us in ways that I just, it's just awesome. Like, not only money, but like courage. Like, like I just am, am encouraged in the Lord. I, my fear is gone. God knows how to reward you in secret. And in this most intimate relationship with the Father, do you want it all to be corporate? I mean, it's great that we bless each other here on Sunday morning. We'll get to that in another week. But don't you want to know what it's like when God, who loves you and knows you, can reward you in secret? Take God up on it. Generous people are happier than greedy people. Fasting people enjoy life more than gluttons. Pure hearts see God. Let's be a church like that.